Welcome to uh, the third panel today, uh, Was There a Welfare State in the East as Well as the West? Um, I'm Johanna Cantario. I'm a postdoc here um, on our Reluctant Internationalist project, and I'll be chairing the panel today. Um, so a few thoughts about what the panel is about and what are some of the questions we're moving into now from a very productive discussion of ideology. We're returning now to the uh, agency of the state, uh, to starting really with the post-World War II moment of the questioning what is the state's role in the reconstruction, how will the state respond to new challenges, and the question also of legitimacy and uh, returning from the state's perspective again to the question of um, ideology versus other forms of legitimacy. And one of the uh, sort of myths, well, if you, uh, is of the post-war that we're challenging is that after World War II, ideology ceases to uh, be of any significance. So, uh, and uh, related to that myth is the idea that in its place comes uh, consumption and some kind of objective way in which consumption can uh, legitimate uh, any state, like whether it's in the East or in the West, uh, consumption as a source of legitimacy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is um, at the root of ideas of the welfare state, um, raising the standards of living and what is the place of the state in, in um, both raising those standards of living and conceptualizing what a standard of living is. Um, so one uh, sort of criticism that you could make of a revisionist approach to the post-war period is that there is sort of one normative model of social mobility. And we want to think rather about different modalities of social mobility, how is mobility uh, sort of conceptualized in, the, in this period, and how is the, uh, it conceptualized in the East and in the West, in Europe, uh, in Europe in a global context, uh, in Europe in a Cold War context. So the question of uh, these different ideas of what a pros prosperous um, uh, society will look like um, and not assuming that uh, social mobility is the same in every place uh, and in every um, sort of in every social and cultural context. So without further ado, we'll keep uh, the conversation going. Um, so we'll start uh, our discussion with uh, really one of the founding historians of the social state, uh, Sandrine Kott. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. No, no, it's not true. <laughs> okay. You can uh, feel free to just fill those shoes for us. Um, professor... <laughs> it's a burden that is what I'm sure of. <laughs> so she's a professor of modern European history at University of Geneva, has studied the history of social welfare and labor in France and in Germany and labor relations uh, in the GDR and now is interested in a, a more European, full European context in the competing social and economic modernities in Europe during the Cold War and this question of social versus socialist state. So. Okay, thank you very much. So I, I'm, I'm not the inventor or something like that, but of course I worked extensively on the on, on the social state and in particular, um, and I say social state. I don't like this expression. Excuse me, a welfare state because it's so British. I mean, it's so it's an invention of Marshall, and it's a, it puts a social state in a very very uh, defined direction. So and uh, you know, working on the first European social state, uh, welfare state, which is Germany. I mean, they would never say it's welfare, but they would say social state, and it makes the comparison between socialism much more interesting if you look at that from this point of view. So, I mean, the, 
just deconstruct this category of welfare state, which really I never use because uh, I find it very ideological. So, uh, but let's say <laughs> with that. So, first of all, um, uh, since I'm the first one, I begin with a general remark. I've, I've already begun. So, and <laughs> excuse me. And um, uh, second, um, if we look at the uh, social state, uh, excuse me, I just shift the, the, really I don't like this expression welfare state, because welfare doesn't mean anything. So, um, uh, if you, if you, um, if you look at, uh, at the history of the social state from the beginning in a certain way, so it was constructing again, uh, constructing against something, it was constructed against a revolution. From the beginning, I mean, just uh, uh, it was clear. And uh, if you if you just look at the uh, International Labour Organization, which was uh, founded in 1919, it was absolutely constructed and organized against the Bolshevik Revolution. It was absolutely clear. It was a way to offer a counter model to revolution. So you know, if you take this expression "social state" or even "welfare state," it's even even worse. Then I mean, you really you are in the Cold War from the beginning. So that's something that you have to know, it, it is important. Uh, so uh, it doesn't mean that you cannot, in a way, compare the way uh, uh, um, uh, Western Europe and Eastern Europe, it's what I'm, I've been do doing, are dealing with the question of inequality or repartition or these things. But uh, you have to be uh, clear about that. So first of all, there are people who, who, who are working on that in a, in a, in a, in a, um, by looking at the emulation between these two systems during the Cold War. And uh, they've calculated very closely, you know, there are uh, quantitative uh, soci sociologists, in particular in Bremen, there is a whole school of these people, and they're doing very uh, beautiful work. And they're really uh, coming to the, to the conclusion that during the Cold War, the expenditure, the social expenditure in the West and in the East have been higher, and they attribute that to the Cold War, to a kind of emulation. So it's a way to look at that. The Cold War was a good time for social expenditure, not for social wealth, uh, not for welfare state, but for social expenditure in a way. There are people who are, who are looking at that in a different way, they are really comparing, and uh, so they are in the framework of competition. So who kind of Cold War discourse, post-Cold War discourse, it's very obvious for the West German in particular, who really wants to show that their welfare state is of course much better than the GDR one. Uh, which is supposed to not be a welfare state at all. Uh, so there is a title of a book, uh, really, which is that. Wohlfahrtsstaat, did they have Wohlfahrtsstaat? Question mark. So uh, they want to deny the, the, even the possibility of looking at Eastern European country as a kind of, you know, social, social countries in a certain way. So they compare. And of course, the problem is, what do they compare? And then you come and, and then you come to the question and the question that I've looked at through the international labor organization sources. Because when they do their inquiry about the cost of social security, a very regular inquiry about the cost of social security, the Poles and the Czech in the beginning and then the others after, I mean, they're just answering, you ca we cannot answer your, qu your questionnaire because our categories of welfare are different. And in since I'm, I worked extensively on the GDR, I know that's true. Their categories of welfare are different. Oh, one minute, okay. So, so I just uh, close here. So the comparison is problematic, so what do we, what do, we do? So I did another, I, I, I took another way. The other way was l uh, less compare, compare 
are as really look at circulation between these two models. And in fact, looking at the level of international organization, but you could also look at the uh, level of national, um, national um, uh, spaces. I mean, you see that there are a lot of, uh, of circulation going on between models, in particular, uh, what is social insurance and social security. And it's interesting to know that in the international labor organization, the people who were in charge of social security were the Czech. And it, it was a Czech up to the 80s. So it means that the Czech model was still a model uh, 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 during, the, during the Cold War. Okay, my time is up, so cooperative in Bulgaria, uh, you know, there are a lot of models which are, which are developed and an exchange on this kind of model. So it means that I think that it's more fruitful to look at uh, these exchanges of models than really to compare. Mm. And then, I mean, of course, you have to look at the experts who are exchanging, but it would be a very large topic. But uh, if you have questions on that, who is exchanging this model? And then you have the social democrats, which are so important in both countries. So that's it. Mm. <laughs> Thank you. Um, sorry about the time. No, 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 you're right. Mm, uh, should be more disciplined now. <laughs> <laughs> I should have lived in the GDR. Maybe it would be Not in France. <laughs> Our next speaker is Dean Vuletic, who is, I think, queuing up a. a show for us. Um, wow. <laughs> and are you here at the University of Vienna? But I don't get Vienna. extra time at the University of Vienna. Marie Curie Fellow at the University of Vienna. Um, and he studies the cultural connections in Europe uh, in the post-war period. And I think there's a connection here also to Polly's presentation. There's, he's talking about innovation in uh, sort of the ways in which ideology are, are, um, is communicated. So yes. he's, a, he's a tweener as well, could have fit into many panels. Um, so yeah, no problem. Thank you very much for uh, your introduction and for inviting me here today, Jessica. Um, so I've been uh, teaching cult, uh, courses on culture in the Cold War for a while now. I started my research on popular culture in the Cold War with a focus on Yugoslavia in the 50s. And for my project now at the University of Vienna, I focus on the Eurovision Song Contest. Wow. Um, and there is a growing field of scholars studying Eurovision, but actually not many historians. And no one looks at the Cold War decades, which were absolutely, of course, formative for, for <coughs> this event. Um, but. My focus has gone from looking not just at uh, Eurovision, but also at Eastern European uh, equivalents of Eurovision that were developed in the Cold War era and called the Intervision uh, Song Contest. Um, and what I want to talk about today is how there was a lot of cooperation and exchange between the broadcasting organizations that were behind uh, these two song contests. Um, Exchange that is perhaps best epitomized by this man, Karel Gott, uh, the biggest Czech singer ever. He wins the Czech Grammy Award equivalent for best male singer. He has won it every year since the 1960s, essentially. And he was a huge star in Central Europe, also in German-speaking uh, countries um, in, in, the, in the Cold War era, from the 60s to the 80s. And in 1968, he represented Austria at Eurovision with this song, um, thousand fenster or a thousand windows. So I'll keep it low so that I can talk about him a little bit more. <laughs> um, but Karel Gott was actually a very interesting phenomenon because um, 
In this year he sang for Austria in 1968. Austria chose him as a sign of support for the Prague Spring because Eastern European states could otherwise not enter the Eurovision Song Contest. It, it was a Western European uh, event. Um, but Gott in the same year sang at the Intervision Song Contest and he showed how there was this common popular market for popular music um, in Europe at the time and one in which Central Europe had a very interesting role because people like Gott who grew up in these societies that had perhaps formerly been more bilingual, bicultural, in his case Czech German, could easily transcend these uh, national and linguistic boundaries. So, so I think you've heard enough. It's the first time that I... It's, it's my... It's a great experience from singing like that. It's great. I mean, I like it. And, um, anyway, as you can see from his song, he talks about the problems of modern life, which are common to East and West. Issues such as urbanization, um, alienation, especially not knowing your neighbors anymore. Um, but this was not only about you know, everyday human life issues. You could also read this song as a story of relations between Austria and its close neighbor, Czechoslovakia. Uh, you know that Austria, uh, Vienna and Bratislava are the two capital cities in, East, in Europe that are the closest to each other. You can reach them uh, one hour by train. Um, but it, and at this time, you basically had you know, different parts of the two cities bordering each other on the Iron Curtain and you know, having, living on a closed border, not being able to have <coughs> easy contact with each other as uh, the two uh, inhabitants of the two cities have today. So why did um, the Intervision Song Contest was set up by uh, the International Organization for Radio and Television, which was uh, an association of national broadcasters, television broadcasters, from Eastern Europe as a, an imitation of the Eurovision Song Contest. And this brings me to my first point, which is that very often Eastern Europeans in this area wanted more cooperation with the West than the Western organizations were willing to give. Um, so that a lot of the initiatives came from the Eastern European side. In 1964, for example, uh, representatives of Czechoslovak television went to Eurovision and said, why don't we do a contest for all of Europe? And the European Broadcasting Union, the Western European organization said, no, make your own. And there were many other examples of this Eastern European organization trying to seek cooperation with its Western European equivalent and the West, Westerners constantly rebuffing them. Um, also, I find it difficult, even though I'm talking about this as shorthand East and West, I find it difficult to talk about blocks um, because when I look at how different national broadcasters participated in these international organizations, they don't seem to be really acting like blocks. They're acting like nation states or television broadcasters with their own interests. Um, and you know, the degrees of block belonging are very different. If you look at the European Broadcasting Union, for example, which was the largest Western European organization of, it, of its kind in terms of the number of members that it had, you had uh, right-wing Portugal and Spain, which were uh, not in 
one woman? No, 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 Which were not in uh, the Council of Europe, for example, or um, the European Community. Then you had the neutrals, of course, which played a very important role in this cultural exchange, such as Austria, but all of which used the uh, song contest for uh, their own political purposes to present a certain uh, political image of, of themselves. And finally, point. also in the International Organization for Radio and Television, it was the same. It was the Czechs and Poles who were usually leading the initiatives yeah, because course. they were seen as the most Western and modern. Yes. Um, the most the so not the Soviets. They were and the that's most where international. Of course, the, the conversation <laughs> continues. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll put on a, a, a show during the tea break, okay? Well, we'll just play. Did he sing the same thing in Czech? No, 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 he sang a different song. But he won that, he well, didn't did win he have, this. Did it have anything to do with the same ideas of, no, sort of brotherhood? Of Not really, no. This was clearly a message for a Western European audience. Sung in German. Sung in German. Yeah, so we'll uh, play this during the tea, tea break and put it into the room. Uh, our next presentation is from Christy Ironside, who is a lecturer uh, in University of Manchester. I was just blanked on that. Um, so she's a social and economic historian of the Soviet Union, uh, and she's working on, on a book about the state uh, effort to transition from a period of post-World War II reconstruction into a period of abundance and the role in particular of money in this transition. Thank you. Yeah, so um, first of all, I, I should probably say a little bit about money in the Soviet Union and my projects, and then I'll, I'll get to some convergences. But I should start off by saying I never wanted to do a project on the welfare state at all. It sort of snuck in via the back door of this uh, discussion of what money was under socialism and what it was supposed to do. Um, I went in thinking, OK, you know, it's not even supposed to exist under socialism at all. How does this society make sense of the fact that money shouldn't be there? What's it supposed to do? And what I was surprised to find when I was going through the archives and going through you know, just the popular media and leader speeches was that already by the 1930s, they had decided that money was something that they could make use of, that, that could be something that was no longer inherently capitalist, but could be used to you know, make a more efficient planned economy and could also be used to raise the people's material welfare. It was the set phrase I kept on coming back to again and again and again. And in 1934, when they get rid of rationing, one of the things Stalin says very forcefully in, in this speech is money is one of the few bourgeois instruments that we as socialists should use to the bitter end. And so it really becomes this, this vehicle for, um, for doing things within the economy. So um, of course, all of this goes to hell during the Second World War, right? Because they have to bring back rationing. There's inflation. Um, you have all kinds of people who return from the war wounded. They can't um, earn money anymore to take care of themselves. They require pensions, things like this. And so I sort of went in hypothesizing that there was more of a role for money in the welfare state. And I also, I take your point, I really like this idea that the welfare state's a problematic concept because the Soviet Union would also not have referred no, to itself as a welfare state. No, but I'm at a loss for what to describe yeah. it as. The social state is probably a very good alternative. Um, so what I started seeing was um, that they see money as a way of delivering the benefits of the welfare state, for lack of a better word there. Um, so higher wages, but not necessarily you know, super high wages, but livable wages, lower prices, lower taxes, higher pensions, uh, lower cost of living, and returns on your investments. I mean, the way I actually got into this project was I did a study on lottery winners in the Soviet Union, and it blew my mind that people could 
win 100,000 rubles in the Soviet Union in a you know, communist society, what were they supposed to do with it? Well, they were supposed to put, you know, invest, they said invest your money in a lottery ticket so that you can improve your living standards, which is ridiculous because lotteries are regressive, right? They're inherently economically irrational. But there was this larger idea that if you used your money properly within this society, you would get returns on it by investing in the state, the state could take that money and then put that into communal projects and everything else. So this is, this is how I came to money and its role in it. And I would also say that in terms of this east-west theme of, of the panel, um, despite a very distinctive discourse surrounding a lot of this, is this really all that different than what's going on in the west at this time in the late 1940s, 1950s? Is, is this not the same period in which you have the democratization of consumption elsewhere, where prices start to come down? There's this idea that people should be able to buy a house, buy a car, these kinds of things. Of course, you couldn't buy a house, buy a car in the Soviet Union, but you know, the, the, the alternative would be buy a refrigerator, uh, you know, invest in, in, in furniture, things like this, right? It's a sort of similar mentality. And uh, if, if you can believe it, well before anyone in the Tea Party in the US was talking about having no taxes, Khrushchev in 1960 said that the Soviet Union by 1965 would be the first country in history without income taxes. So there was a very, and they put this plan into place, it lasted for all of two years before they realized that taxes actually are a really good way of tamping down inflation in your economy mm -hmm. and are a really good way of creating revenue streams that then in turn fund these things. So a lot of this is, is not really all that different, I think, despite the, uh, the very distinctive discourse. Um, some other areas in which I think we, we really should be thinking about this is the Soviet Union was created with this idea that capitalism was inherently crisis prone and decaying, was supposed to be you know, leading to the further impoverishment of the working class. And yet after the Second World War, when these Soviet economists that I look at are looking out, they don't see that actually. They start to see a lot of the kinds of things that they thought were unimaginable 50 years ago being implemented. Um, a very uh, clear example of this from my recent research, um, I wrote an article on the bachelor tax in the Soviet Union, which is um, the tax that before the late 1950s, everyone paid who had less than three children in the Soviet Union. Um, it was a way of boosting the birth rate, etc. But ostensibly, it was supposed to fund benefits to single mothers and children. But by the 1950s, even these economists were saying, you know what, this is actually a really crazy, yes, a really crazy way of doing this. Wouldn't it be better for us to actually just build concessions into our income tax code? This, of course, goes nowhere because the mentality is we need to actually just get rid of taxes altogether. But they start looking outward. They start looking to France in particular, and they think that the family quotient is a really great thing. And there are people within the Soviet government who are pushing for these kinds of models. So I think a really fruitful line of, of, of questioning would be, you know, to what extent does the fact that um, <coughs> capitalism isn't decaying in the way that they think it is, but in other ways is seeming to deliver a quite high standard of living to its citizens, how does this change the way the Soviet Union thinks about its welfare project? Thank you. Thank you. Christy, very efficient to, right to the end in five minutes. So our next presentation is from Bela Tomka who is a, a, a professor at um, University of, Ze of Zegev. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 20th century social and economic history as well, with a focus on international competitions. Right. Comparisons, Comparisons. Rather. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you for the organizers uh, for inviting me and the other uh, distinguished uh, colleagues. Um, we have a very limited time budget, so I uh, would start uh, 
uh, with some uh, major uh, issues without uh, much introduction. As it is uh, uh, more or less a common knowledge uh, in social research, uh, what the, it is more or less a common knowledge in, in social uh, research what the communist welfare systems looked like. I quote Gösta Esping Andersen from 1996, the old communist regime was characterized by three pillars, full employment and quasi-obligatory employment, broad and universalistic social insurance, and a highly developed, typically com company-based system of services and fringe benefits, end quote. This is a relatively fair, plausible account, but misses several important points, and so do many other contributions on the topic. First, there was a fourth pillar, uh, price subsidies, yeah. the significance of which was greater than that of the fringe benefits. Secondly, social welfare in communist East Central Europe uh, showed a peculiar dynamics uh, universalism only prevailed in a very limited period of time. Thirdly, social security fulfilled a specific role different from that of in Western Europe. And uh, lastly, even in the very limited, very short period of time when uh, the universalism of uh, social security prevailed, Universalism was not the only organizing principle of uh, the welfare in that countries or in these countries. Uh, the welfare systems were uh, rather hybrid systems. Uh, of course, I cannot really elaborate on these points, but I would like to uh, raise some issues related to, to these uh, characteristics. As to the price subsidies, uh, these subsidies had an explicit goal, which was the improvement uh, of living conditions and the nivellation of the purchasing power of uh, incomes. Uh, however, these subsidies also served uh, other purposes, not uh, uh, officially acknowledged by these uh, by the, 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 the governments in these countries. Uh, namely, they, they also subsidized insufficient uh, branches and insufficient uh, production. As a result, uh, the, the, the explicit or the confessed goals of these uh, measures or these subsidies uh, uh, were not as uh, or, uh, as as, as uh, uh, effectively uh, achieved as as one might assume, namely uh, the, the the redistribution effect of these these uh, price subsidies uh, was relatively moderate. However, uh, they made up a relatively high percentage of the GDP. Uh, for example, in 1982 uh, in Hungary, 9% of the GDP, a similar number, uh, we can see a similar number in, in Poland, and even a much higher uh, percentage in the GDR, where in the early 1980s, 
the 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 price subsidies or rather the share of su price subsidies in the G uh, GDP or the national income if you like uh, surpassed uh, social security expenditures yes, As, and this leads uh, me to the second point thank you um, <laughs> uh, about the dynamics of, of, of these uh, 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 programs or schemes, welfare schemes. Um, well, I only have one minute, so <laughs> I should be really uh, considerate what I say. So um, uh, there was a quite uh, uh, interesting dynamics, dynamism of, of these programs. Uh, we can see a kind of, uh, uh, we can see uh, crisis cycles in these countries, the programs, the welfare schemes were uh, extended uh, after political uh, crisis, just like 1956 in Hungary or, uh, or, or, or 1960-70 in uh, Poland. Uh, that's why one might argue that these welfare states were emergency welfare states. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as to the to the uh, the, the, the hybrid uh, character of these uh, welfare schemes, um, we might stress that uh, not only uh, the price subsidies and the full employment as characteristic communist features uh, prevailed, but also. Uh, uh, these schemes also consisted of different elements of welfare arrangements, thank you, prevalent in Western European welfare states, uh, namely the Bismarckian principles of work relatedness also uh, uh, were characteristic of, of these uh, systems and even uh, these characters even became more pronounced over time. Thank you. Uh, so our last panelist today is uh, Peter Romain from the University of Amsterdam. Uh, he will be talking about uh, his work on the post-war uh, reconceptualization of the state, also bringing in the idea of the nation state. And he's a 20th century historian, focusing usually on the history of public administration. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much also to Jessica for inviting me. I actually was thrilled because I'm working uh, presently. I'm not a Cold War historian, as you will notice. Uh, I'm working presently on a project of um, how the Netherlands during the 1940s was and remained mobilized for war, first during the Second World War, and then, uh, then for the war of decolonization in Indonesia. Um, and this invitation forced me to think about the place of the Cold War in my work, which I had not done quite a deal, <laughs> I must confess. So um, I uh, would like to say something about uh, actually the role of the restored uh, nation state as what you might say uh, as a machine for shaping uh, the hopes and ambitions uh, for a better world prevailing uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, not just in the Netherlands, but probably on a more universal basis. And of course, it would be interesting to find out about uh, individual perceptions and 
uh, agency. This actually is indispensable, as we have noticed already, for thinking about the history of the Cold War. But the other side of the question is how these trajectories were formulated, propagated, and challenged in order to meet uh, the expectations of the political communities and help the post-war rulers to claim or reclaim uh, legitimacy. Uh, in this respect, three um, elements seem very important to me. Uh, the first one is the restoration of the national state as a prime mover. Second one is the provision of good governments, perhaps a little bit more even than the provision of a welfare state as such. And the third one is the underlying political conceptualization and value orientations. And this is not exactly about ideology, but I think um, it's uh, about building stones for ideology. I think these, uh, this concept, composite set of reasoning helped, for instance, um, the liberal uh, Democrat Victor Klemper in the aftermath of the Second World War to um, uh, become a member of the uh, German KPD. Uh, and on the other side, um, Calvinist dust resistors found inspiration in this kind of thinking uh, to restore, restore their trusted political party they called the anti-revolutionary party about the state. Uh, by the end of the war, central states were in disarray and restoration of the authority of the central state was imperative for tackling the main problems and uh, returning uh, to normalcy. And the state uh, very much also defined itself as a nation state in confrontation with the uh, uh, occupying empires that had stressed transnational ideologies. The process of restoring the nation state often included, included a revision of borders, a redefinition of the political community and of citizenship, so also of the community for whom uh, the state would take responsibility. No promise for immediate relief, sustained reconstruction, social reform and future welfare were possible without reinstalling the central state. Good governance included taking power, proper care of the immediate humanitarian needs and restoring the rule of law. It also required strong and severe measures for retribution and purchase and, as I said, a redefinition <coughs> of the political community. It also brought the nation back in views. Borders, citizenship and belonging were embattled and populations were purged of alien elements. We may think of ethnic purges in Central Europe, but also of political purges of failed citizens, like in the Netherlands, where extensive schemes for re-educations of former Nazis were conceived and realized. The underlying value orientations helped to shape the Cold War politics, but could also work in different directions. Once again, I derive some of them from the Dutch case. In the first place, traditional anti-communism was strong. It dated from 1917, as Sandrine already stressed, and it was basically anti-Bolshevism. During the Second World War, the resistance from the right proclaimed to fight against what they called state absolutism, represented um, by the radical right and the radical left in political, social, and economic spheres. So here we see ideology at work, and the ideology of the right uh, including the radical right, should be studied uh, in order to find, about, uh, find out about the roots of welfare state thinking as well. Secondly, the international orientation in the immediate post-war also remained self-centered, thank you, and uh, block-oriented. Uh, neutralism and colonialism came to an end in most violent ways, and under circumstances, the Western allies in the Netherlands were actively distrusted, quite in line with long-standing distrust 
of British and American ambitions in the East Indies. Third and final, the state paved the way for economic recovery, but sought the foundation for that in pre-war wisdom, low wages, colonial revenues, and recovery of Germany. Hardly any interest in the continental Europe existed. So what considered itself to be a victimized nation was told by the rulers that pol politics of austerity embodied the best way to recovery, that reconquest of colonial Indonesia was imperative, that social peace should not be disturbed by the radicalism of the right, uh, of the left, and that reconstruction was presented as a tool for mobilization. Delayed consumption was presented as a sign of political virtue. There is where I leave the role of the state for further discussion. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. It's never happens to me that I'm in time. <laughs> so we have a full 45 minutes now for discussion. Um, so I think without further ado, I'll just open up the floor. Could you tell me, I go back to this theme, at the time in the 50s and 60s and 70s, did people think about the comparative side of what was going on in welfare states in Western and Eastern Europe? Or did they not think about that? Which people do you mean? Well, recipients of, of aid or planners or... Um, planners. Writers. Planners is something different. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Do I have to answer now? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, so recipients, it depends, you know. I mean, how can I answer this question? When you say the people, it's very vague. There were people who were comparing. The point is, which people were comparing? Which people were really looking at from the east to the west and from the west to the east? Of course, if you look at international organization, it's clear because international organizations are there to circulate information. So the people in the international organization were looking at the east and west. They were comparing all the time, all the time. I mean, look just at one uh, a journal which is online, uh, the International Labour Review. You will see that there are a lot of things on, in particular, the Czech uh, social security system, which was presented as a model. Because, in fact, it was universalistic, even if it didn't function as universalistic after, but when it was uh, put, um, it was seen as universalistic. So, unemployment, you know, there was also these things. And on the other side, of course, consumption. It was, they were, uh, as it was, well, as Bella had said, I mean, they were absolutely obsessed by consumption, the Eastern people in the West. So, they were, they were measuring themselves constantly. And the people who were bridging both, these experts that I didn't have uh, time to talk about are very often social democrats. Why? Because uh, you have to think about who are the communists on the East. Most of the communists on the East are former social democrats who had to join the Communist Party because there was, there, there was no other way. And my experts in the international labor organization who are coming from the East and working with the West are almost all former social democrats who have these networks from 
before and who are still working with each other. So, you know, it's uh, the circulation of information is very vivid because of that, because you have the same people. And the thing which is so interesting is that, in fact, these people who are working during the Cold War together were already, not all, but uh, part of them, working together before in the interwar years. Mm. Uh, I'm not talking about the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union, I, I, I don't exactly know about, but I'm sure that with this Fordism, I mean, I mean, I'm sure that there are also this kind of connections, but I know less good than Czechoslovakia, Poland, and others. Mm. Uh, did you have an immediate... Just a follow-up. Do you have a sense of that comparison in a sort of more global context? I remember recently reading a British account of the post-protectorate Kuwait was explicitly saying that the government is, is introducing a welfare state. That was the term used. Do you have a wait, wait, I didn't get it, excuse me. Yeah. In post-protectorate Kuwait, there was a British account yeah. of, that, uh, of the social and political development in yeah. Kuwait, and the author was saying... Kuwait? Kuwait. Ah, Kuwait, Kuwait. excuse me. Oh, excuse yeah. me. Uh, and uh, uh, the author was saying that, that the government's introducing, quote, the welfare state. So yeah. I was wondering if you have a sense of that comparison, you know, uh, uh, going, being tried outside of the European context. Oh, you mean that they exported the welfare state outside? Uh, for instance, uh, yes. Yeah, and who was exporting? Because, of course, you know, for example, like something that I've, I've studied um, uh, always uh, through the Economic Commission for Europe or through the ILO in particular, that they uh, set up very early on uh, this kind of workshops where they invited people uh, from, the, from, from the global south. And you know, one of the first workshops on social security was organized by the Czech. And they invited, in particular, people from the Middle East to teach them how to set up a, 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 a scheme for social security. It was very interesting because the whole story of this workshop is absolute, is very complicated. At the beginning, it was part of the EPTA program, the Expanded Program of Technical Assistance, and the US didn't want to pay for that because they said it would be Cold War propaganda. So, and after a while, so they, 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 they did pay for it. And it's interesting because the reaction of the global south to this kind of workshop is absolutely, is, but it, I cannot enter it because it would be very important. But of course, it was this kind of exploitation. But uh, I've never heard, I've, 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 I never, it, it was, it's more technical, you know. It's not, we export the welfare state to the global south. It's more, we export this kind of scheme or this kind of scheme, but not the welfare state. And even, I mean, even the term welfare state is not very, very often used in the ILO. So that's interesting. Mm. Does the ILO use social state? Yeah, the ILO use social, social security. security. Yeah. <laughs> um. They use social security. And on, under social security, they mean a lot of things, a lot of things that we don't mean under social security. Like housing is a social part of social security, mm -hmm. those things. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. You, you see, there's a question. Yeah, okay. um, yeah I have a question. Specific question to Christy, actually. Um, mm. You, if I heard you said that uh, the Soviets were looking for models outside. From the sort of 50s onward, when it was a little bit more politically right. so okay I'm to sorry, do that. You mentioned France, but is there, mm -hmm. you know, is mm. there further afield? Is it, yeah. um, who is doing this looking? I mean, because mm -hmm. we have this image of the Soviet Union, sort of a black box. You couldn't leave the Soviet Union unless you were a diplomat. Right. Unless you were intervening in a country uh, militarily, um, or then later on, perhaps yeah. as a well 
supervised police. So, um, the, the Ministry of Finance, for example, had an internal think tank and it had economists and policymakers drawn together within this institution. And from about, I mean, really from 1956 onward, when you, when you have, it's yeah, it's, it's the crucial period. Although earlier you could do it in, in more subtle ways. But what they start to do is um, inevitably when they put together a kind of policy briefing on pension policy in the Soviet Union, something like this, they'll include a section that says, well, what are the people's democracies doing in Eastern Europe and what's going on in the capitalist mm -hmm. countries? And they'll always formulate, they will always put the people's democracies first, don't get me wrong, it's the Soviet Union, then the GDR, they look at the GDR, Czechoslovakia, and then they say, well, what's France, England, West Germany, um, it did, sometimes the United States, although not as often as France, England, and Germany. Mm. And so, so they'll, they'll compare and they'll say, well, they have um, come up with these types of solutions. Or they'll say, well, um, but, but then again, you know, their policies are maybe not as good in this way because workers have to pay so much in rent, whereas our workers don't pay rent. And so maybe their food prices mm. are really high and they mm. spend a lot of money on that, but it's because of this. And so mm. they start to kind of justify it with an eye outward. And they'll start to, especially for things like taxes, pensions, mm. etc., they will start to compare in a way where it's no longer just saying we're doing everything right. They're mm. saying there are other solutions mm. out there, mm. and they become kind of more receptive to it. Whether or not they can sell that to the political leaders is a separate story altogether. Mm. These these are the economic experts, and this is their internal discussion for the most part. Sometimes though, they do report upward these kinds of things. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. Mm. I'd like to point to Germany as a special case, maybe, um, for a comparison, because it contrasts maybe not all, but I mean, I, I don't think there's any other case where the, con the comparison was so direct because people could watch TV. I mean, mm -hmm. people in Eastern Germany could watch West German TV and could, of course, understand everything. Um, and that was, that covered at least two thirds of the country apart from, it was called the Valley of the Clueless in Saxonia. Um, and um, to me, an interesting, well, two interesting points actually. I grew up in Western Germany, and we never compared ourselves to the GDR. I mean, it was not forbidden to watch East German TV, but nobody wanted to watch it in the first place. And when I moved there um, to East, to in Eastern Germany, I was struck by the fact that they, everybody there had grown up comparing their lives to, to life in the West. I think this is a very profound difference. Um, people grew up differently. Um, the, the categories by which they evaluated their lives were totally different. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the results was that um, you mentioned uh, commercials. Um, I find this hard to believe actually, but so many people have told me that they believed life in the West was like in the commercials. Yeah. Because, this is what because it's life very powerful life, ideology. Which <laughs> meant that they didn't believe mm. the ideology, here we come again, um, that they were being uh, fed by their governments, which also meant that they didn't believe those things that were true about the West. So when the wall came down, they mm. were struck by the fact, yes, there is unemployment. I mean, they've been told that for years, but. It just felt, well, it never occurred, never came up in the commercials, so it probably doesn't exist. <laughs> um, I have a, um, a couple of questions, which are really about, um, about how um, the countryside fits into this picture of the social mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. but, but, but yeah. And it seems to me that a big part of, of the social state 
in, in Western Europe went into the subsidies to farmers and the, um, uh, the agricultural policy. Um, so that's sort of one part of the question. The other part of the question concerns, it, 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 it's born of complete ignorance, which is about how the social state in, in Eastern Europe dealt with quite high levels of migration from the countryside to the town. And, and how, um, and how, and how um, entitlements um, are dealt with, uh, with those levels of mobility. Because as we see now, mobility and entitlements can create. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you all want to comment on that, or as you, as you wish. I, but I have thoughts. Okay. Christy, why don't you start? Um, the, the short answer is the countryside fits in very badly. Um, and part of it is, uh, I mean, traditionally in the Soviet Union, you know, peasants aren't even really supposed to exist again as a class for much longer. There's a bit of a mentality that they're all going to turn. They were really into the factory farming idea in the Soviet Union well before anyone else. Um, but but they, they fit very problematically because they wish they had a factory farming model and they're mm. stuck with farmer's markets, right? It, it's mm. the sort of small-scale agricultural production. So that's part of it. But there is this really pervasive notion that the peasantry is self-sufficient and therefore it doesn't require, I mean, it, it, it's not true, but, it's, but it, they don't require the same levels of uh, pension security and things like that. That's part of the mentality why they're not given pensions, collective farmers not given pensions until 1967. Um, a lot of the price subsidies and things like this, they're, they're really oriented at the cities, less so at the countryside, because again, they think the peasantry feeds itself. So they fit very badly into this model, but over time, they do start to get integrated. And actually, one of the ways that I would argue they start to get integrated is via money, because you have a shift to them being paid in cash as opposed to being paid in kind, which was the way, one of the ways they were kind of there was control exerted over the peasantry under Stalin. Once they start having a sort of legitimized way of making money, they start to become more integrated into this system from the 50s onward. Um, but yes, also migration is a big part of this story too, because you know by the 1960s in the Soviet Union, this is a predominantly urban society, and that was not the case prior to the Second World War. So you do have people shifting between those categories, and that creates new welfare entitlements. Mm -hmm. yeah. So actually, one sort of point of comparison might be the um, Privileged nature of the countryside in the West. <laughs> well, uh, may, may I say something about it? Yeah. Uh, yes, please. Yeah, well, it's it, it, it's fascinating because the countryside often tends to be overlooked in this kind of pictures. And I'm just old enough to remember uh, the uh, horse uh, horsepower in, in, in agriculture in my country. And it was so in the early 60s. Yes, well, this is great, isn't it? In the early 60s, there was a huge transformation driven by the EU. Um, uh, fully uh, intended to create larger scale. I mean, all the small holders and the smaller small holders were all sanitized away. I mean, this the word sanitizing was used for that. Mm. Um, the agricultural system was, uh, by means of EU subsidies, uh, the countryside changed. I mean, the plots were enlarged. Um, the uh, mechanization was going through and. Actually, uh, the protest of the smallholders was that everything looked now like a uh, kolkhoz. <laughs> <laughs> and ironically, <laughs> a generation later, the sons of the um, people who were sanitized out of the system uh, were taking over the coll former collective farms in Eastern Europe because they migrated <laughs> and, and, and paid the money. But 
the, the idea of uh, compar comparison was the independent farming class is more or less kicked into uh, EU mold mm -hmm. by means of huge subsidies and you never know mm -hmm. how high the subsidies will be next year. So mm -hmm. there was not a sense of more independence but a sense of uh, less of independence but of more independence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You want yes. to, to just 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 for, uh, for the countryside? I mean, you have to take something <laughs> into account. Is that I mean, uh, as uh, Bella has already mentioned, I mean, most of the of the social state on the east is consumption. I mean, price subsidies, and uh, as far as consumption is concerned, I mean, the countryside were absolutely at disadvantage because they had absolutely no shops. That's the point. I mean, there were they, they, they were no place to buy something, so or less places to buy things. So in fact, they couldn't really benefit from the price subsidi uh, sub subsidized because they they couldn't con they were out of the consumption society, the socialist consumption society that they wanted to be. So it's part of the of the game. It's important to remind that. Mm. I think there are two or three reasons uh, why we cannot consider the communist welfare states universalistic in the 1950s and even uh, in the early 1960s, and one of the discrimination of the rural mm -hmm. population. Yeah. Uh, the other one, the, the privileges of the of the nomenclatura and some uh, reliable and uh, yeah reliable um, politically reliable social groups soldiers policemen etc so there was a, a, a clear discrimination of the rural population for example in Hungary in the 19 uh, uh, even in the early 1970s the child benefits for 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 uh, Children living in in villages was lower than uh, in the case of the of the children living in urban settlements. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference was not dramatic, but no. still uh, uh, it was a sign of this uh, discrimination. And of course, there were other uh, even more important uh, elements of this discrimination uh, in terms of the accessibility of uh, healthcare and uh, pensions, etc., etc. We have a number of questions now, um, so I just would like to con collect a few so we can get the, the, co the conversation, keep it going. So, uh, Professor Yeah, um, yeah um, I mean, mine, uh, it, my uh, subject area of interest is actually interwar um, Europe. And so I'm interested to know how much of what the old systems, how the old systems operated was continued in welfare state or was apply something brand new. But what actually is it built on? Is it built on anything or is it is it a new? phenomenon, particularly my interest healthcare. I need to, we'll collect the questions for that. Um, <coughs> it's interesting what just was mentioned here about the pre-war, because I was very surprised to find out when I was working on my biography that in fact, during the interwar period, legislation protecting workers was very good in Poland during the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And also, what there was a tradition in Poland, of what they call kasychowy, which was like a subsidies to a medical insurance, mm -hmm. which were protected by government legislation no, and in mm -hmm. fact were a, an example of uh, you know, how well-functioning... That's the reason why welfare state is not a good world because it implies that it has been invented after the Second World yes. War and mm -hmm. it, it was absolutely not. 
It's but the absolutely thing not. is that that was never referred to mm. in the communist period. A line was drawn because the capitalist system uh, mm. had been destroyed, withered away, and with that one, what had been negotiated by the trade unions very successfully mm. and protected workers likewise was thrown out of the picture. So there's no continuity in terms of experience. But the other thing is this question of how much did people in Eastern Europe understand about the capitalist system in the 70s and 80s. And of course, the Polish community was unique for actually being able to travel to the West and communicate with family, you know, for example, in Britain. So it was, Poland was never shut off, but during the 19, early 1970s and 1980s, during the big minor strikes, when I was in Poland, and I, and, and I was challenged as to you know, what these communists were up to in Britain, and I was trying to explain that there were genuine problems in uh, uh, you know, the labor market and in employment. The Poles could not understand, and then I one day realized what it was. They had no concept of redundancy. They had, con the idea was of retraining. And the mm -hmm. idea that you shut down whole areas of employment, right. and that was that, was inconceivable. Because in their way of thinking, the comprehensive package of employment, overemployment, in fact, meant that you, the government assumed responsibility, mm. not only for running enterprises, but also for guaranteeing mm. that you moved into something else. Yeah, exactly. So when confronted mm. with capitalism, which of course was rather sudden, they had to blame it not on the capitalist system, because that was a model that was mm. going to be everything good. Mm. They had to blame it on Jews, which of course was very easy to do. <laughs> sort of even in particular, if there are no Jews, it's, yes, it's, it's even so better, you, yeah. You but all you had to blame it on Balsarovich. There was no understanding of capitalism, nor was there any desire to understand it. And therefore, you know, any discussion for a historian or sociologist on the, these gaps, it, it's really a gap. That's what it is. Yeah, just to, just to go back briefly to agriculture. Uh, where there are very strong, Western side at least, there are very strong continuities with the, with the interwar period. Um, but uh, it, it is extraordinary how much of the discourse around the construction of the CAP is quite explicitly anti-revolutionary. Um, the, the threat immediately comes from the radical right, from Pujadism and things like that. But uh, so De Gaulle says quite explicitly, if we don't have a CAP, we'll have, we will have another Algeria on our own soil. In other words, we will have, we will have the revolution uh, on our hands. So there is a clear anti-revolutionary discourse. And the second level in which it connects to the Cold War is one of the other reasons why, this, why the uh, sort of farmers' vote was so important was that virtually all of the European electoral systems had over-representation of rural areas, partly because they hadn't kept up with migration, but also because it was deliberately attempting to in effect, in effect, meaning that the communist votes in towns counted less. Mm -hmm. So you have a tendency to uh, give the countryside excessive political weight, which of course leads, mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. leads to economic excess. Mm -hmm. So 
maybe uh, hold Oscar and Dina to the next round, if you would all, um, who would like to respond to her? Oh, maybe the interwar, because I worked mm -hmm. on that. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, I, you know, I mean, the social state, it was invented in Germany at the end of the 19th century. Of course, it was not invented by the Brits at the, after the Second World War. I mean, just a kind of... Uh, to prevent revolution also. <laughs> Excuse me? To prevent revolution. And to prevent revolution, that's right, yeah. Okay, to prevent social democracy of being too big, and so on and so forth. And you know, these are all ideas that the trade unionists were the ones who were pushing for social state. It's not true at all. They didn't want that. They wanted the right to work. They didn't want uh, uh, social benefits. They wanted the right to work. It was the main thing at the end of the 19th century. And then they got involved in all these funds, Krankenkassen uh, uh, and so on and so forth. So they got integrated through that. So this social democratization of the working class movement through the welfare as a social state is a process which had been studied, I mean, particular for Germany, but also for other countries. So in fact, the social, the social state was a mean to integrate the working class within capitalist society. It's what it is about. So, and of course, it begins at the end of the 19th century. And then you have the, uh, the uh, British welfare state. It, it's very interesting because right now I'm working on that uh, because I'm doing something on the Nazi period. And the British welfare state is really a byproduct of the war. It's really uh, offering a counter model to what the uh, uh, Nazi Germany was selling to the world, you know, as a. And it's a. It's, it's very easy to see, to look precisely when it came up. It came up in 1942 with the Breveridge Report and so on. And it was really, it was really a weapon of war. It was that. It was a weapon of war. And it succeeded. Because, of course, as we know, I mean, uh, it's easy to sell ideas. Uh, in particular, if you're a good capitalist person, I mean, you can. <laughs> if you sell goods, you can also sell ideas. It's very easy. So, and they were very. I mean, and 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 the machine, the machine, which was produced to sell these ideas of the British welfare state, is just incredible. It's really it, and it worked very well. Mm. <laughs> but you know, it, when when the when the when the people from the Reichsarbeit Ministerium were really the people who knew about uh, wealth, uh, uh, really uh, schemes and protective schemes and so on, were looking at the beverage plan. They knew it was bad. They knew it was a very low plan with very low benefits and so on and so and so forth. You know, I mean, they know very well. And even the people in the ILO knew that, but they had to sell it. They had no other choice. So it's it's interesting. It's a very interesting. Uh, story. Very interesting. Mm. Mm. Your question about uh, what, what remains from the war, what's uh, come from the war into the peacetime, mm. well, so, some of the th things I could propose. Uh, in the first place, armed forces, uh, because uh, after the war is ending, uh, we hope to, we tend to think about army dumps and uh, spare stuff, etc., etc., but basically there are huge modernization uh, plans for armed forces are already in movement and uh, they just continue and uh, the uh, nation states that are rebuilding building themselves require new armed forces to uh, enforce in the first place their um, monopoly of violence internally but also to play an international part. Uh, in my own country there is also the interest of the colonial war, there's a huge military effort, uh, unbelievable uh, a complete new army has built, uh, is built uh, under the leadership of uh, former resistors, funny enough, uh, who, turned, uh, military, who turned military men, who are turned into military men. So armed forces is very important. And of course, this is a, uh, an interesting contribution to the Cold War uh, in development. The second thing is the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy is enormously uh, 
it's grown enormously, um, also in, in numbers and in tasks, and the numbers remain and the tasks remain. I mean, the the state is an, em uh, is an enormous employer also in the West, and uh, they take all kinds of assignments they haven't mm -hmm. had before the war. So mm -hmm. that's another thing. Um, if you're interested in healthcare, I think the two models, the British model where there's a statification, mm -hmm. uh, the, the other model uh, would be a rapid privatization of the new infrastructure, but paying it all by, uh, by uh, all encompassing social mm -hmm. insurance or yeah, medical yeah, insurance. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you've got the, the, the building, uh, the, the infrastructure orientation, so to speak, so house building, mm -hmm. uh, transport, mm -hmm. uh, working towards transport, and you've got education, because education is towards more technology and also more adaptability to uh, modern world and there for instance there's this uh, interesting connection in the course of the 1940s with American programs mm. of Fulbright yeah. yeah. etc. People are mm. traveling mm -hmm. not just mm. for the hard science but also for uh, 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 well uh, managing human relations and well that's that's some of the things are I think uh, never uh, stopped again. Mm. Entertainment. Country in the world uh, that mm -hmm. introduced mm -hmm. uh, social uh, insurance yeah, legislation, and Hungary, yeah. the third mm -hmm. uh, country in the world, uh, doing the same thing. Uh, so yeah. that was not the product of the of the twentieth century. Mm -hmm. However, I would not downplay the significance of the of the mid twentieth uh, century, the war and the beginning of the Cold War or the, the, the establishment of communist uh, systems. Um, in the late 1930s, for example, social security expenditures uh, made up some uh, six or four yeah. percent of the GDP in mm. Eastern yeah. Europe and only somewhat higher in, in Western Europe. Uh, while in the 60s or 70s it, it uh, yes, was closer to, 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 sure. to mm. Uh, mm. 20 and 30 percentage. Mm. So the, 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 the mid of the 20th century, the war and the, and the new uh, uh, international divisions and, uh, yeah. and, and but then Obinger would say for example this, this guy aus Bremen he would say that exactly the competition between the two blocks just foster and, mm -hmm. and speed up the, the, uh, the social expenditure so it's really the, in this competition that this expenditure is just uh, going up and now we know because it's going down as we and know. I would like <laughs> to <laughs> uh, make another short remark uh, which is related to the link mm. between consumption and social welfare. In the case of the communist countries, I think we should be very cautious about uh, establishing a link and uh, putting consumption issues and social welfare in the same basket because these countries were fairly successful in uh, establishing uh, social welfare, social security. Uh, via the full employment, first mm -hmm. of all, but unsuccessful 
fulfilling the consumption desires of the population. So while the first uh, uh, area, so to speak, first institution, so to speak, the social welfare schemes were quite successful in in creating uh, legitimacy or uh, or improving the legitimacy of the of the communist government. The second area, uh, the consumption, was uh, the major cause of the fall of the communism. So I see a quite uh, uh, important uh, uh, the need of a quite important dis- uh, the need of a distinction between these two See, it failed, areas. but it tried. But they it failed, but it, it tried. Very important. The, it was very important. They were in, yeah, together. After this, uh, in the in the in the sixties and the seventies, I mean, it was the new welfare socialism was consumption socialism. They, they failed, but they tried. It was their way. Well. <laughs> <laughs> that was a reflection of this. Uh, <laughs> politics, yeah. So we have uh, questions from uh, Dina and Oscar, and then um, Anita and Diana. And Eastern European welfare state, uh, or the, the, the projects, the consumption, the uh, social security, etc., etc., is that it got tied to the Western, it kind of, that it tied itself to the Western standards uh, that it is, began to compete with, and therefore eventually it was unable to sustain the competition that it brought itself into, mm-hmm. and hence collapsed. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the regimes were so they are financially uh, not viable anymore. I'm wondering, do you think there is another way of thinking about this process? Because it, it strikes me that this is kind of this very that it's new, almost a meta narrative, and that a lot of the economic histories, the consumer histories, uh, consumer culture histories of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union are kind of eventually leading to that end point, how the competition was self assumed and then impossible to sustain eventually. Um, I have nothing against this argument, but, so, but I get very suspicious of things that's going to become meta-narratives. I mean, I really like it before it was everywhere. Uh, so I wonder if, it's, if there are other ways to think about this. And also, it strikes me that kind of uh, lurking in this uh, panel, of sometimes very exclusive, sometimes kind of very close in the background, is how uh, the specter of uh, socialism and capitalism, uh, both good and bad, kind of informing these policies. So, uh, are we, like what Peter was saying, are we turning into cold pots? Uh, or are we turning into, are we employing, kind of paying too many so and so policies? Are we becoming capitalist countries? So, how this uh, uh, fear of uh, becoming the other. The, the other, or getting too close to the other, how they kind of really are woven into these policies and in the, in the evolution of these policies, and if you care to comment on this, kind of how it evolved, how it's influencing what does welfare state mean, and that's constant. Mm-hmm. Oscar? 
Yeah, no, I, uh, I agree with Dean about the, uh, the narrative consumption uh, as, uh, I mean, that stuff was there in the Schwarzenegger movies of the 1980s. Uh, <laughs> and, and then when it collapses, like, ah, Schwarzenegger was right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't think it's a very uh, uh, convincing sort of narrative of, of it. But, but I was struck by uh, your, your mention, uh, Christy, of um, uh, this discourse of personal responsibility uh, related to uh, 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 and responsibility of your finances, because mm -hmm. this is the cudgel, of course, that has been used to whittle down the social state, the state yeah. everywhere uh, already, and 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 also, uh, I mean, in terms of the Cold War, uh, uh, this is embedded in in the neoliberal project mm -hmm. already. By 1979, you have Michel Foucault, for example, noting that this is a core tenet mm -hmm. of. Uh, of, of neoliberalism, that it, uh, it, it creates subjectivities based on a discourse of personal responsibility mm. about how you manage mm. your financial self, how you manage mm. your mortgages, how you manage mm. your, your pensions, etc. And so I wonder if you have more of it, or if it's a one-off related we'll with, talk about more. <laughs> related with, so it's not just related to, to the, uh, the, the, the lottery, uh, but it, and, and do you see it expand, develop into something, because it doesn't necessarily, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, maybe there is a logic that is antagonistic to the social state, but, 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 but is, is there an attempt to make it a concept with it? And David, you um, I just wanted to make a point, I think, about just the importance of, um, of communism for at least the British welfare state. And, and it started in my head, in a way, thinking, thinking about, about beverage. And, and everything that was said about beverage is exactly right, but we shouldn't place too much emphasis on him. I mean, there was a crucial moment earlier in 1921 when the British government continued to pay insurance mm. to unemployed workers mm. after, the, after, after the insured benefits ran out. And they did that because they were scared of communism. And the reason why the beverage report was, as it was sustained in the post-war period, was because of, of, of communism under, I mean, under under conservative governments as well as under Labour governments. And if we're allowed to uh, bring in pers personal reminiscences as a as a Benite in the early in the early 1980s, you know, and, and people in the Labour Party, then, you know, we, we would talk about grabbing the commanding heights of the economy. What we had in mind was our fantasy of, um, of socialism in practice in, in, in Eastern Europe. And just the, the last, uh, the last point is to say that since the, um, since the Cold War was won, we, can all see what has happened to the welfare state no, in the West. So, <laughs> so I just think you know, the importance of the Cold War mm -hmm. um, for uh, for the Western welfare state. I think we need to be. Maybe we'll just squeeze one more. And in this issue of how much one side understood about the other side, I recall that during the Zhdanovshina period, so '46, Zhdanov goes very heavily for the economists in the mm -hmm. Soviet Union. And one of the accusations leveled against Varga, the Hungarian economist mm -hmm. who is in the Soviet Union, was that he 
was among a number of analyses by, by economists of what's happening in the capitalist system, had drawn the conclusion that the capitalist system during the course of the war had um, acquired mechanisms for scaling down potential conflicts within the system. And one of them was actually a, a mechanism of uh, you know, a negotiation. And therefore, the, the, the old interpretation that the capitalist system is inevitably heading for crisis it was in fact challenged. It, it, the, the suggestion is that they would somehow move through a sort of social democratic model towards a socialist model. And of course, Stalin went heavily for the economists, and Varga only survived. In fact, a number of them were executed. Varga only survived because he was able to flee to Hungary, he was Hungarian, and simply not come back. But I don't know what happens later, because that was something I, I haven't studied. There's sort of incidental information here. After that period, do ever the Soviet economists come back to this potentially exclusive uh, piece More of research so that the capitalist system has got the capacity to transform itself? I don't know, but it, it's actually based on the study of capitalism. Mm. Mm. Do and we respond? Yeah, maybe you is that consumption? To, yeah. to question of consumption. I wanted to um, mm. comment on the previous um, Dina's uh, question on the battle of consumption mm. in East and West. I don't think there was a battle going on in the West. I think the West had won, or the Western system had won the West over. The battle was in the East. Um, if I look at my research, the importation of materials from the East was much, the Westerners weren't interested basically. And I wonder if this was just a matter of communism or if it is actually just part of a longer history of a fear of Slavdom, mm -hmm. of, you know, linguistic differences, of uh, certain Western racial superiority over the East. I mean... And yet it plays out in Germany itself as well. As well, exactly. And in Austria especially, you, you know, you, you see it, there's historically been you know, this fear of, of all of its neighbours, and even when it comes to uh, such uh, cooperation and exchange, it's always the Germanic system that is somehow considered superior to, to uh, the uh, other alternatives, be they cultural, economic, or social. And I know with these two organisations that I deal with, they exchanged programmes from the 1960s, and the Easterners were also always taking more from the West than the Westerners were from the East. So what uh, Ilka was saying, you know, why it's Ilka, correct? Sorry, why West uh, Western Germans weren't at all interested in Eastern Germany was, um, you know, that also demonstrates that simply wasn't a market for East German uh, television programs. The Westerners just felt themselves superior. They thought that they just had the the better cultural products. It so it was the Easterners that had to import from the West and the West. Well, they were, they were the West as well. Yeah, in Eastern Europe, they were also their own West, like the Czechs and the Poles and so on. And that's another point that Anita brought up. I think it was interesting when you said, oh, the Poles, we, we were unique. Everyone says that about them. You did. We were unique because we got to travel. <laughs> Yugoslavs always say the same thing. And, part of, and their identity was really built on this myth of uniqueness in uh, Eastern Europe. And this is something that the Poles... Also, they're yeah. second on the list of unique. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and 
and then it's probably the Hungarians who are third. And it's very interesting how there are all these Occidental and Orientalist comparisons going on um, at this time in terms of yeah, the social system being able to travel, popular culture and so on, and how these actually don't have much to do with, as much to do with communism than they do with past experiences of uh, cultural exchange <coughs> and economic development and so on, which comes back to your point about you know, what did the interwar period bring. And by the interwar period, already a lot of these hierarchies mm. were in place. Mm. The Czechs, mm. Bohemia was the most modern. Mm. This is why, for example, in the post-war era, where did they set up the, um, the broadcasting organization mm. for Eastern Europe? In Prague. It's mm. not in Moscow. Moscow is too far away, not central enough. It's in Prague. And the first four countries that co participate in television experiments in exchanging um, programs in the early 1960s don't include the Soviet Union, mm. Czechoslovakia, of Poland, course. East Germany mm. and Hungary. Mm. So again, it's the more modern Western yeah. Yeah. ones uh, who are there. So the unique ones. Yes. <laughs> and this is something <laughs> this is very interesting yeah, because if you look at how Eurovision is reported on in the British press these days, or in recent years, it's full of stereotypes of continental Europeans and especially East Europeans. Oh, that they're somehow conspiratorial, they vote for each other, they don't understand what it means to be democratic, they don't understand what it means to be meritocratic, they're corrupt, and it all comes out at a time when, you know, East Europe is being integrated into the European Union, Britain is experiencing a wave of East European migrants, and it's dealing with all these issues of East Europe, but, you know, the picture comes out. Oh, but great. We take in Australia. It's a tricky question. It's it's really a tricky question. Uh, in fact, you know, historians who have worked on uh, uh, the consumption on the East, and there is a lot, a lot of work doing uh, on that and East German consumption and all these things. So they tend to look at the way that they create, uh, how they created a new model of consumption. So they're not really. I mean, they're less. Uh, trying to see how this model failed, but how it was different, how they really tried to invent a new model of consumption and on which uh, kind of uh, values and so, on, and so on it was based. And in particular for East Germany, because it's, it was so interesting. So there was something which was called um, uh, Present 20, uh, how do you um, um, gift uh, 20 in a certain way in English? I mean, it doesn't make any sense in English. But uh, so it was, uh, it was, uh, it was uh, closed. And they, uh, for the 20th anniversary of the GDR, they, uh, they, they had this new, new line of, uh, of clothes. And, so, and it's called Present 20, which means really gift uh, 20. So the consumption is a gift in this society. I mean, the gift that the state uh, um, uh, gives to their citizens. So it's a completely different way of looking at consumption and of doing consumption and all these things. And so it's embodied in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, 
yeah, in um, in a different uh, view of what consumption is about. So in a certain way, we have to look at that. I think it's interesting to look at consumption from that angle. Uh, so, and not just to look at consumptions that, oh, they failed, uh, of course, to offer. They also failed to offer uh, these things. But there is a special way of looking at consumption which is, uh, which is different. And uh, so, uh, how, and, um, uh, you know, I mean, of course, I mean, the West doesn't look uh, uh, to the East. First of all, it's not true. They look to the East for, 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 for a few things. For example, for unemployment, I mean, you know, for employment. It's a full employment society, and I can tell you that they are really looking at that, and they are very interested in how they manage to have all their people employed. And it's true. Maybe not West Germany, because they don't tell you, but I tell you that even the West German were looking at East German for that. But of course, they wouldn't tell the people. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that um, if, you, if you want to look at the attractivity of this Eastern European model, then you have to go in the south and look at the way that the people were looking at these two models, at these two solutions. And you have people who choose the, 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 the East. They choose the East, the Indians, for example, when they're in the Soviet Union for free. They are studying in the Soviet Union for free. They say it's much better that, that you have to pay in the United States. So, I mean, it's not, you know, of course it's a, and in particular because, in particular West Germany, because they have been completely brainwashed, um, because West Germany is also a result of the Cold War. It's a Cold War country, exactly like East Germany. It's the same. But, of course, West Germans don't believe that because they're part of this story. But, um, <laughs> but you know, uh, it's, but it's, 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 that's right. I mean, you know, in France or in Italy, it's different because you had a huge community. <laughs> No, because I know, I know, you know, I've done a lot of GDR story and, and when I speak with West German about that, I always have the same question. But I go to the United States, no problem. When I go to Britain, no problem. When I go to France, of course, no problem, because there was a huge communist party. So, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's important when you, when, when you do this kind of thing. Cold War, it's something that we went through. So it's important to look at the way we are looking at it. It's very important to try to historize, historicize our own experience on that. It's so important. And so. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that the East was great. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we have to be careful about our own appreciation of what it was about. That's it. No, you've not been aggressed at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, since I know now that I've been brainwashed. Um, not no, you as a person. Right. I mean, of course, and that's, this mm. is something that I tried to refer to earlier. Uh, what do we call ideology? What do we call bias? Mm. And of course, we're part of that. Mm. And to say, you know, we deal with it because we're historians, of course, that's not true. Because we of course, we come with our biases. And of course, one of the biases is that most historians tend to be sort of on the left and they tend not to want to believe the, 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 the master narrative. Um, so having said that, um, I actually wanted to say something totally different. But um, I, I, I do think the consumption side is, I don't see how you can argue that any differently, really with the best of intentions. 
I'm not saying the that they, that they failed. That's mm -hmm. true. They failed. That's true. Yeah. They didn't offer a good uh, consumption to the citizens. That's no, true. No, I'm no. not saying something different. I'm just saying that if you don't want just to look at that in that direction, there are other ways of looking at it. But I'm not saying that they, are, they, are, they, 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 they succeeded in offering uh, what the market society is off, uh, was offered. I'm, I'm not, not saying point. that. Not at all. No. This is really not what I'm talking about. Mm. I think when you, when you say people didn't look, I mean, we're talking about different people. We're talking about different structures. Of course, the governments looked at the other side. Um, actually, maybe as a small detour, there's the book about Britain that is called War is Good for Children. Um, because it was during wartime that the state put in all sorts of social services that didn't exist before in order to keep their own populations in line with a, um, you know, to, to keep them on their side. So in a way, I think it's something similar could be said for the Cold War. Um, you know, if, if you're in a contest and you have to fear you as a government that your population will desert you, you have to give them something. And I think that's true for the Cold War as much as, as for hot wars, anyway. But the thing is, you're also, of course you're right, of course the East German government tried to put in a different sort of consumption narrative or concept. And of course they try to point out that there is more security or equality. It's just that, and, and you know, it's something that I like very much. I'm not happy that the majority of people both in the West and in the East preferred a color TV than to equality. But it's just that the majority of the people did prefer the color TV. It's, it's, it didn't catch on the way maybe you and I would like it would. I'm not I am very convinced of that. And if you talk to people, and it worked, I and mean, the, the, the living standard in Eastern Germany did go up until about the 1970s. So people, when they compare themselves to what they have been before, tended to be rather content. But then it stopped. It just couldn't catch up anymore. And, and <coughs> you know, the, the amount of time that people had to spend just standing in line. Not in East Germany, they were not standing in line. They were, no, they had to wait for, for cars. That's for sure, but not to so not. We, no, okay, take, so. I'm in taking the <laughs> chairs for a minute. So we okay, can okay, okay. a brief yeah. uh, mm. response uh, from mm. the remaining panelists, and then we'll transition to our uh, tea break. I, just a short remark. Uh, I don't think the asymmetry of exchanges between uh, the West and the East has anything to do with the biases of, of Western Europeans. Uh, thank you for uh, for this, Western mm -hmm. colleagues. But uh, it, it, it uh, was simply a result of ineffective mm -hmm. institutions, uh, corrupt ideas, etc., etc., in the East. So I, I would not agree uh, with this kind of interpretation. But it was already backward before. I mean, ba mm. I, I mean backward because it's the way the West was looking at the East before. They said it was backward. That, uh, in my <laughs> view, that was a marginal component of, of this asymmetry of the ideas and, and institutions, etc. There were also other reasons for the Eastern countries being poorer than the Western countries than a difference of system. It's not only... It's, not only it's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Other other, but the fact remains, it was poorer. But the Eastern countries were themselves so different. I mean, uh, look at Yugoslavia, Slovenia, and Kosovo. You know, you had one of the richest parts of 
Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe, or it actually was by the 1980s, Slovenia, and then one of the poorest within the same country. Or even if you just look at the block, you know, Bulgaria and Czechoslovakia, again, huge differences. I mean, was it even a... It wasn't even consistent within, within itself should, to be able to... You should read Alberto Thomas' accounts on Eastern Europe in the 30s, and you will see how he looks mm. as a Western European to the Eastern European countries, and now he says that it's they are absolutely underdeveloped. Yes, that's well, that was the that that historical reality. <laughs> it was underdeveloped. And so, yeah. mm. Um, mm. Chrissy, you want to I will reserve my comments about personal responsibility and neoliberalism for tea. <laughs> <laughs> We wanted one last word. Yeah, bad luck for everybody that I'm <laughs> I'd like to stress one thing, and that is I think that um, we should not confuse thinking of the other with making comparisons. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. Because uh, that's, of course, very seductive. And I think mm. that we should think uh, about what defines uh, the image of the other side. Mm. I'm picking up a little bit if mm. Anita remembers what she said, but of Anita, sorry, uh, mm. Dina, what you said about uh, uh, very early. Uh, I think it's, for instance, the whole I, um, the, the regime, the system, uh, and, of course, the standards of living. I, I would prefer standards of living over consumption because standards mm -hmm. of living also include mm -hmm. care, the care yeah. system, mm -hmm. and more general perception of uh, social <coughs> justice. And a very important thing is also uh, the image of how the other side uh, um, uh, works on conflict resolution, mm -hmm. internal conflict resolution, external conf uh, conflict resolution, because there is not a comparison. I mean, it would not be difficult to uh, compare uh, the French riot police in the late 1960s uh, with uh, um, uh, oppression in the East. But on the other hand, it induces different kinds of fear if you think of tanks, etc. So there is, mm. I think, um, a whole set of instruments where you could measure uh, the images that are more defining than in comparison, because I maintain that uh, comparing was asymmetric, as it was said before. Some states or peoples are less interested in the other side than in, for instance, the United States. I mean, mm -hmm. the Dutch never cared very much about the consumption in the GDR. No, they um, uh, cared about what uh, the United States was putting up for example, and they also cared about Western Germany because if they were to, I mean, they should be a little bit rich because it's good for our trade, but they should not be too rich because they, after all, lost the war and pillaged, uh, lost the war and pillaged. So <laughs> there is a whole lot of sensitivities about uh, looking at the other from the perspective of uh, consumption, mm -hmm. and that's not just a cold war thing. So. Mm -hmm. Silence. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for our